You're listening to The Switch. The Switch is a podcast about ideas and experiences that change our minds. I'm your host, Chase Harris, joined, as always, by my co-host, Alex Berner. This is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. We start out with uh, State of the Switch. Alex and I discuss a few switches we've had from our interviews with our guests. And I love that we're able to do reviews like this because often what we get from reflecting on our experiences is sometimes half the value or more of an experience itself. Next, we move on to some audience switches. When we first asked people to contribute their switches, we weren't sure what we were going to get. We were asking people, do you have any story you can share about an idea or experience that has changed your mind in some way? But what we got was incredible. I don't want to spoil any of it here, except to say that people have a remarkable ability to share their experiences in a way that we can all get some value from. You'll hear from six of our audience members who are also members of the 52 Living Ideas meetup group who volunteered their insight. And when I say member, I just mean someone who is attending. There's no membership dues. You don't have to take a test. You don't have to swear an oath. You just have to show up and listen. And that's what these people have been doing. And now they're speaking. Now, this episode was actually recorded in three parts. The third part, which is more of an open discussion, was moderated by my friend Shrikant, who's been on the podcast, who runs the 52 Living Ideas group. And as much as it's connected to the main portion of the podcast, it's also heavily contextualized within the 52 Living Ideas group. So what we decided to do, you may have seen this already, is to include that part of the discussion in the podcast feed as a bonus episode. If you really want to get the most out of it, I recommend going to the link in the show notes, 52 Living Ideas, attend one, two, three of the meetups throughout the week, maybe more, and it'll give you a much better understanding of some of what people are talking about. You know, the names that they're talking about, the groups that they're talking about, the experiences that they've had in the 52 Living Ideas group that has been so gracious to host the Switch these past couple months. And even though you can enjoy the bonus clip without all that, you won't get nearly as much. So there's my plug for 52 Living Ideas. This interview was recorded via a live video call with a small audience who gets to ask questions of our guests when we interview guests, or in the case of this episode, gets to participate and tell their stories. If you would like to participate in our recording process, head on over to our Patreon page where you can find the link for free to come hang out every Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. We are, of course, a Patreon-funded podcast, and even though we would still be doing this without your support, the generous contributions of our patrons definitely allow us to do more interviews more often with more guests at better and better quality. If you feel you're really getting something out of this podcast, that's a great way to just let us know. Keep going. We find value in what you're doing. Becoming a patron also allows you access to some bonus content, things like post-interview chats with guests, breakout room discussions from the meetup group, things like that. You can find us at patreon.com slash switch underscore podcast. The link is in the show notes. So without further ado, we start our audience episode and state of the switch with a quote from Carl Jung. That which we do not confront in ourselves, we will meet as fate. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guests for today's episode, the audience First, Alex, we've got some business to attend to. Let's talk about the podcast. What have been some of your major takeaways of the last couple of episodes? So I actually, at the beginning of this, I was like, okay, I need to cut down my list because I, I have so many. Um, so I'll start with, a, start with one that's short and sweet. Um, Josh, Josh Nass, when we interviewed him about ham radio, my big takeaway was that it was actually interesting. Nice. Um, Moving on, I think when we talked to Mike Glover, it, it really helped me switch my mind around preparedness, just in general, you know, in, in how people who are preppers, um, you know, are crazy. When right. after hearing him talk about it, it seemed like everybody else is crazy because they're focusing on 
the few instances that could just end your life. And if you spend even 10 minutes preparing for it or be, you know, or $30, it could save your life or somebody else's life. So it was something that I just didn't realize how important that was and how like little effort it really was. You know, you don't have to go and build a bunker. Right. Um, Do you want to take one? Yeah, actually, I'll pick up on the Mike Glover one. So this is a switch that I had doing the research for the episode with him. And we actually, it became a big topic during the discussion. For me, that switch was the importance of community in disaster preparedness. So, you know, you think about things like whether it's, uh, we'll take some of the more common things like hurricane preparedness you think of hurricane preparedness as, okay, make sure you're stocked up on enough food, make sure that you, whatever, board the windows up. I don't know. I don't live in a hurricane zone, uh, at least not a major one. But you you think about those things that you do to sort of hunker down you and your family. What you don't think about is, well, what are what is my extended network? What are my neighbors doing? What is my extended, maybe you might think about your extended family, but how am I going to make sure that I can be a community resource doing things like, you know, knowing that the person down the street is somebody who needs oxygen. And this is also something that Josh Nass brought up in ham radio preparedness thinking, okay, I also have a ham radio license. That person is on an oxygen tank. Maybe once this storm is over and there's destruction, I'm going to go check on them. And if they need oxygen, I'm going to key up on my radio to the local uh, emergency coordination station and say, Hey, you know, Mrs. So-and-so down the street, we're in this area is on an oxygen tank and has two days left of oxygen, right? Those are the kinds of community connections that you need in a preparedness scenario that you don't think about because most of the preparedness community is like, Oh yeah, always have your tourniquet. Uh, you know, make sure you have enough food stocked up. Don't forget to stock up food for your dog. And like, make sure that you, you never take pictures of your house keys because people can reconstruct them from photographs. And it's like this community involvement is a huge aspect of that. So that, that was a switch that I had not during the episode, but in the, the preparation for the episode. Totally. Yeah. Just to give you some insight into somebody who lives in South Florida in a hurricane zone. When I moved here, I learned how we deal with it and it's don't pay attention and then regret it later. So just I mean, that's a strategy. Yeah. Um, moving on to um, Sean Croxon's episode. Yeah. Um, I think I had a lot of switches in that one, but one I wanted to focus on was limiting beliefs. Cause this is something that immediately when he said it, it like stuck out to me as like, I do that. And I could name a bunch of instances where some I'd overcome and some I was like, Oh, that's probably why. Mm-hmm. And Um, For example, I think he might have used this one. Um, People who, like the idea that people who are rich are greedy, right? And if you have that, it gives you a lot of subconscious implications. Like, therefore, if I get rich, I'm greedy. And it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance and, you know, kind of rejection of the idea of wealth accumulation. And that translates out and, you know, has fingers and all its different aspects of your, of your life. Yeah. And I noticed that I do that and I think it's because of kind of where how I grew up and there's a lot of anti um capitalist kind of sentiment, you know, anti um you know, very pro community, anti self um enrichment. So I think even with you know our business even when you know I'm put, trying to put a price on my work on my workmanship of, you know, music composition it's hard for me to want to actually charge what its actual value is because it feels wrong to me, even yeah. though what it is, I, that's, that's my own issue, but it's, it's just so hard. It's like, I care about the, the workmanship and I care about pleasing the client. I don't care about the money, but then right. over time that's like, okay, now I'm not making enough money. So yeah. I can't win both of those. So it's, it's a system and, I think um, that really kind of shined a light on that um, for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to go back to the episode with Amanda from the dorm. And one of the ideas that, well, 
two of the, the ideas that she brought up that I've been thinking about. So one was transference and counter-transference. So in therapy, that's the idea that you project onto, if you're the therapist, you project onto the client some personality that is actually more closely related to some problem or something you're having in your life. So for example, if you have uh, you know, an abusive ex-husband and you're dealing with a male client who's just who's exhibiting behaviors that related or not to your ex-husband somehow remind you of him that you're going to start treating the client in that way and there's counter transference i don't remember which one's which the other one is where the client is doing that to the therapist and the way that that relates to why people become therapists so you know you have a huge phenomena where people who have difficult mental health issues will seek out therapy training and begin helping other people in that transferent way where it's like, oh, if I can help other people enough, maybe that will rub off and help me, but I never actually have to go and do the work to seek help myself. I never have to take that vulnerable step of admitting that I need help because I can just help everybody else. And I think I've, I've understood that a little bit implicitly, but I had never heard it in concrete enough terms that like that idea solidified for me. So that was more of a neutral switch. I didn't have the opposite perspective. I just didn't have a, a full perspective. Totally. And to, to kind of combine that, that episode with Amanda with what you've already said about community um, with pre- preparedness, it, one of my switches for that episode was how important they've discovered community is in recovery from mental illness and how often your relationships with other people are what's um, you know, negatively impacting your life and holding you in, in patterns and routines and negative behavior, self-image. So it's really interesting to hear how they like kind of create a community among the, the, I forget what they call clients or or whoever. Yeah. Um, Yeah, They're clients. Yeah. And how much that's helped it, you know, with the, like she alluded to upcoming studies with success rate being significantly higher than another mental health recovery centers. So I thought that was interesting. Um, Another one I had was with uh, Rupali Sharma um, on Montessori education. Um, This one was pretty much a switch from the second I started looking into it because the entire um, idea of it seems based, I I can relate to. I, I don't remember what I learned in school and I don't really care to. Everything that I retained and learned and learned how to learn was through discovery, curiosity, learning about how to evaluate and assess information and basically just out of my own drive to pursue learning, growth, and knowledge. And my parents were both teachers. So I had kind of an advantage at home where I had a lot of materials. It was almost set up like a Montessori school, right? I had games I could play, educational games. I had books. I had, you know, could go outside and learn about different types of grasses and, you know, weeds and trees and identify trees based on the bark and the leaf shape and, you know, identify different types of animals and track them and stuff. There were so many different things I could do. And it was just because of, it was interesting. And I didn't have to be told, you need to learn 50 pages in the next week. And I'm not, I can't give you a good reason why that's the case, you know, because this, well, why is that? And you can go up the chain until there's no answer, basically. Um, So I think I, the switch I had was just, it raised the question in my mind, why is this not the primary modality of our education system? And it seemed to confirm to me that these systems are just extremely difficult to change, right? When they have the inertia, they're, they're hard to, um, you know, they're just small iterations can be made, but it's this huge system with millions of people, you know, that you can't just stop and start over. And that would kind of be the case if there was like, we're switching. Um, And the other, my more personal take, which might be more controversial, is that um, 
our education system is not designed for us to learn, but to churn us out to be cogs in a machine, ready to be told what to do, and then for for the school to serve as daycare for those cogs so they can be more efficient, and on and on and on again. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I, that was just as much a switch for me. That that's probably one of my favorite episodes that we've done as of late. Uh, I, I I mean, it's hard to pick a real favorite, but that was the one that. Uh, yeah, so I had the same reaction. Um, moving on, one cool thing that stuck with me from Jean-Luc, who was talking about music technology and interactive audio and his story, was his story working with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And first of all, that's just awesome. But the story of how he actually got that job, where you know people were sending in CDs back then, that was the early 2000s. And when he asked Trent, how did I, why did you pick me? And he explained that like, there was this big stack of CDs and his was the only one that actually had his name printed on the side. So like when you looked at the stack, you just kept seeing his name. And then when you pulled that one out, it was the only one with like a real cover on it. Like he had put work into an audition CD and just going that extra mile to have great presentation to show your personality. And uh, of course he also said everybody else sent in music that sounded like nine inch nails. Cause they're thinking, Oh yeah, Trent Reznor, like this is what he likes. Whereas Jean-Luc just sent in like, here's what I can do. This is my stuff. It's cool. Yeah. And for all of those reasons put together, like that was what stuck out and got him the job. I thought that was amazing. And I, I've heard that advice before, of course, but until you hear stories like that enough, like it doesn't totally solidify how you apply that to your life. And, and speaking of our episode of applying ideas to life, um, <laughs> there is, I was just listening back to that. And, and one of the things that John brought up was taking these ideas and implementing them right away, creating a mm -hmm. schedule, creating something like that. And we actually took that idea you just mentioned, you know, where the, the CD standing out and, have been creating mail-in cards to invite people to be on the podcast. So yeah. that's a, a tangible way that we've implemented an idea and hopefully continue to build this whole system and grow it and keep it going. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know when we get the first guest from the mail-in invites. We'll, uh, we'll point them out on air. It'll be fun. Um, beyond that, Ray Batra came in, talked about shift up. And again, that was community. So that's, that's three, three episodes at least where community has come up. It's almost as if community is an important part of life. Wow. I feel like we should maybe base an episode on that. <laughs> maybe we should. Do you have any other switches that you want to? No, that, that was, uh, that was it for me. That's the perfect segue. So as community is so important, we wanted to do an episode where, you know, every week, if you listen to this on the podcast side of things, you hear me give my little intro before the main recording that says, this was all recorded on a live Zoom call. People come in and are listening to this live and usually are there to contribute to the conversation, ask questions of the guest, have a conversation afterward. Well, this week, we had a little discussion pre-podcast got a couple of people to volunteer some switches that they've had. So now we are getting the community involved in creating an episode. So the question that we asked our audience is essentially, what is an idea or experience that has changed your life? And so for that, we will go ahead and start with Shelly. Hey, everybody. Hey, Shelly. Tell us your story. Um, okay, I will. Well, um, but first I wanted to say thanks, Chase and Alex, for having me here and for doing this podcast. And um, as I've been watching since I'm relatively new to 52 Living Ideas, um, you're both very um, inspiring in your leadership and how you're really digging into uncovering truths and being self-evaluative. And I commend you on that and just continue to go forth. You're doing a great job. So um, you're welcome. So um, 
what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to I'm going to talk about how I went from being a stay-at-home homeschooling mom of five boys um, to being single and on welfare, and now to being a career-oriented, successful woman. Um, let, I, I'm going to try and being be as concise as I possibly can in it. Um, so I want to say that um, I, you know, it's funny you're just talking about the Montessori school and and. I can really identify with that. I, I loved homeschooling my kids and creating an environment of learning for them and really meeting their needs. And so I felt very fulfilled in that role. I loved that role. Um, one day I began questioning um, my husband about some money choices he had been making. Um, he had had some, uh, some struggles financially prior with his business. And so, um, in uh, prior, I had no access to our finances or anything. And through a series of events, um, I, I was managing the funds and was, uh, was watching over things. And so I asked him one day and I said, hey, uh, some things aren't really lining up here. Can you explain to me what's going on? Um, this was in 2010, so a decade ago. And um, at that time, I was still homeschooling three children. Um, I had two. My two oldest boys were in private school. Um, I began questioning and pressing my husband, and he ended up um, uh, pulling a gun out of our closet, um, uh, attempting to commit suicide. And I wrestled the gun away from him in front of my three younger children, um, beat him into submission over the head with the gun case, all the while calling the cops. So that was the pivotal event when my entire life really fell apart. Um, my life was nothing that it had really appeared. Um, my ex-husband subsequently was um, convicted of a Ponzi scheme and ended up in prison. And so here I was, um, single, um, no career, and when I say no financial resources, I mean literally zero cash dollars. So I had people leaving, uh, anonymous donors leaving food on my front porch to feed my children. I had people from my church come in and start selling things off so I could have cash in my pocket. I immediately had to go get on welfare. Um, During this time, um, I had some tremendous anxiety, um, as you can imagine. And this is the point where I hope I inspire whoever's listening to this, that it is worth fighting to overcome your fears in every area of life. So I had this tremendous anxiety and um, I really clung to a verse in the Bible that said, is 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And that just kept coming back to me and coming back to me. And I was almost unable to think because of the anxiety. But out of that birthed a mantra and that mantra was, I will not allow fear to dictate my destiny. And it began to shape every single choice I made. So the first thing I had to do was I, I had to get a job. And um, I, I got a job that was uh, a part-time job. And then I had to get my boys in some kind, of, uh, some kind of help to deal with the mental trauma, right? Um, so that was part of the goal. I got ourselves somewhat stable, but I was still on welfare and I was just determined to get us off welfare. My, my whole goal was I did not want to be a burden to society and I did not want to be a burden to my children in my old age. So um, I, ju I just faced my fear. I picked up and moved to a town that I had never been to before. And I went back to school and took some courses. I thought, I, had, I was living in a very small town. I had no understanding of corporate America or anything really beyond my very, very small, small homeschooling world that I lived in. So I moved to Augusta, Georgia, where I live now. Um, I went back to school and, um, and I ended up 
out of that taking some really hard um, science courses. So I thought that I would do something in medicine because I love medicine and I love science. And um, that didn't play out. Um, I really loved it, loved going back to school. But what did happen is through that series of events, I ended up getting the job with a large corporation where I am now. Um, in the course of four years, I've gotten about three um, substantial promotions. And, um, and today I'm going to be, I'm in escrow closing on a house, October 2nd. And I remember when, when I moved here and I'm using my EBT card and to buy groceries for my kids and I'm humiliated, humiliated every time I use it. I'm just mortified. And I think back to that woman, you know, who had nothing. And here I am today, a career woman. And even though I loved homeschooling and loved that life, and I grieved leaving that life, I love my life now. I love the life that I have. And I really believe that is because I said, I I am not going to let fear of the unknown, fear of failure, fear of rejection keep me from taking a step forward. And so that would be the lesson I learned from my switch, my change from one life to another, is that don't allow fear to dictate. Don't allow fear to dictate your future. Take the step. And that's my story. Wow, Shelly. That amazing. Thank you. Um, so that's, I kind of want to follow up more. Do you have any place where you have a, a public presence, like a blog or anything like that? Um, if mm -hmm. not, if you ever decide to have that kind of thing in the future and people are interested in asking you questions about your story, following up, just let me know. I'll make sure that links to whatever end up in the description because that's, I mean, that's incredible. I love that. I will not allow fear of anything to keep me from taking a step forward. I will not allow fear to dictate my destiny. Like, yep. like, you know, the whole thing is, is that, um, it's your potential. Like speak to yourself about your potential. You have every potential. And just because you're going in this trajectory here and your aim is here, don't be as scared of course correcting, right? When it changes, then course correct. And then take the step here. And when then you course correct there, take the step here. And I have to say, I've failed way more than I've succeeded, right? So these three promotions that I've gotten that have been pretty substantial, one, I've worked my ass off for them. <laughs> but, but two, um, well, I, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. But anyway, you get the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. All right. And next up is Stacy. Okay. Wow. Um, so so I have I have to say that Shelly, if you wrote a book, I would buy it for everyone I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is just an amazing story. And um, I would never say should, but if you were to, let us know. And I would be the first to read it and I'll let everybody else know. Um, second, you know, there's, there are these people who everyone says, oh, you don't want to follow so-and-so. Uh, you know, like when Martin Luther King gave a speech and the next guy was up, you didn't want to be the next guy. <laughs> Because, oh my God, how can you follow that? <laughs> I feel like the next guy right now. Uh, my story is so mundane. Uh, and, and I guess I'll, I'll kind of start with, well, yeah, I'll just tell it. Hopefully I won't go too long. But the backstory of it is um, that I'm a kind of uh, geeky person. I grew up reading a lot, um, you know, sort of a geeky kid, loving uh, science and technology and math. Uh, but I had some, things that were kind of, I would say, working against me a little bit. Uh, so, some were good and some were not. Uh, so like I went to a Catholic school, to Catholic schools most of my life, and there were really good aspects of that. But there were also some kind of backwards aspects. 
in particular, I had a really strong interest in math. And the way that math is taught or was taught back then in Catholic schools uh, was very strict rote kind of, uh, of teaching. And you really didn't deviate from exactly what you were taught because you were doing it wrong. And my head had already evolved even before I had gone to school, some uh, ways for me to do math. And they weren't like what we were being taught in school. So I would find, for example, with simple arithmetic that I would get a lot of things wrong all the time, unless I did it my way. But if I did it my way and the nuns caught me doing it my way, they would, you know, whack, no, don't do it that way. You have to do it the right way. And then I would, I'd, you know, get through it, but I wasn't always getting the right answers doing it, quote, the right way. Just had my own method. Um, and then kind of later, I think it was eighth grade or so, we were learning about square roots. And um, this is for people who are not mathematicians, maybe a little technical, but uh, taking square root of negative number. And my teacher said, oh, you can't do that. And left it at that. And I went home and I thought about it. And I thought, man, that's just crazy. And I noodled around on some paper. Um, but oh, by the way, I'm when I was in eighth grade, I was younger than everybody else because I had skipped a grade um, as well. So I was already young starting school and I skipped a grade. So that made me even younger. Uh, but I went home and I kind of came up with this way of like, well, if you could take the square root of a negative, and I had my own word for what that would be, uh, and then what would happen? And I came up with all the mathematics of it. And I went back to school and told my teacher, hey, look, I invented this really cool thing. You can take the square root of a negative. And she said, oh, yeah, you're going to learn about that next year. They're called imaginary numbers. Okay, so we're going to learn about that later. But on the plus side, you know, I had figured some things out, but I kept having people telling me, no, you're just not good at this, not good at this. And there was another aspect of it is that people were telling me you should find something more suited to a person like you, uh, which is a little bit code word, right? Um, they were basically saying and, and encouraging to some of my classmates uh, who had different skin tone to do the math and to push themselves but for me, no, 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 you just go do something else. Um, and so that was a little discouraging. Well, ninth grade, I was in an all-boys Catholic school, and I got one of my algebra, pre-algebra, or whatever tests back. And my teacher, uh, whose name is Dr. Alpiner, I don't know if he's even still alive, but if he's out there and, and uh, is, is around, he changed my life. Um, and it was funny, because he was actually... Um, the one Jewish teacher in the all boys Catholic school. Um, so it was funny, but he came over and he gave me my test back and he said, um, you're really good at this, but you need to get a calculator. And I said, what do you mean? I'm good at this. I'm terrible at math. I hate math. You know, I hate math. He said, no, no, you're really good at it. You understand the algebraic concepts, but you just, your calculations are wrong. And I said, well, that's because I like to do it a different way. And he said, well, show me. So I showed him. And he said, oh, yeah, that's called the Russian peasant technique. I said, what? And so I looked it up, and he, he and, and sure enough, doing math left to right and holding the, the um, intermediate results, so you only have one intermediate result to hold and all this kind of crazy stuff, that is a, an actual technique. And he said, yeah, just do that then, because then you'll get the right answers. Well, fast-forwarding a little bit, um, in 10th grade, I finished um, my pre-calculus and um, by 11th grade, I'd done AP calculus. Uh, the math uh, gave me a boost in physics. So by uh, 11th grade, well, yeah, by 11th grade, I had actually done advanced placement, uh, calculus, physics, and English. So I got those college credits out of the way uh, before I was even a senior in high school. But uh, that, and then I met some other uh, budding mathematicians, and we just took off together. We were just uh, unstoppable at that point. Uh, but that, that really changed me. And if you look kind of behind me now, you'll see math books like crazy, Adventures in, Adventures in Number Theory, and uh, calculus books, and all kinds of physics books, and all kinds of things like that. 
when we go to on vacation and we're sitting on the beach, I'm reading a math book. I mean, that's how much I am into it. And going from that, oh, you should do something else in eighth grade to that switch, that teacher, that person who saw the potential and just gave me permission to do what I could do. Uh, that was just huge. Yeah. Incredible. Thank you. <laughs> sure. uh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there, there are two aspects to, to that, right? Like in one sense, it's almost instinctual to say like, oh, well, I, you got lucky that you had this person who gave you the permission. But then at the same time, like knowing you as I do, I, I almost feel like that would have been inevitable. It was just a matter of time because your personality is such that like you would have pursued those things. But the fact that you had that switch at that time, at that moment, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Thanks. Well, and, and it did one other thing for me. Um, and that is that it made me look out for uh, people who have that potential too. Um, and slight plug is um, Detroit is limitless. Um, there's, if you go and look that up, uh, you'll find that there's a little documentary about uh, a person like that who is just uh, actually two two kids who are in Detroit uh, and people don't think about Detroit in this way and they should. But if you look up Detroit is Limitless, uh, the, it's it's amazing the story of these kids and people people tend to uh, disregard different people who are different. So like the, some of these kids their grammar may not be the best and they may have a little bit of that, you know, sort of inner city twang going in their voices and they'll use slang and, uh, and whatever, but they are absolutely brilliant. And if you listen and if you give and you work on the substance, then it's just amazing. Um, and, you, and you'll see that with some of these kids, like the, the, the one kid, Except if you just listen to him talk, you probably dismiss him. But if you listen to what he's really saying and not just the sound, oh my goodness, he's a genius. He's probably going to be the like one of the next big computer science geniuses out there. And the, and there's a young lady in the documentary as well. And I don't know as much about her because I haven't worked with her as much. But just watching uh, her, she is so unbelievably motivated. And that's why I want to do the same thing for people as what that teacher did for me. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, uh, the lesson from there as well is pay attention so that if you have the opportunity to be that kind of person for someone, you actually take it. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And Stacy, as we always say in my house, don't, don't worry about comparing experiences. Something that's, you know, seems small can be, have huge impacts, you know, for, for one person. So. Yeah. Well, it did for me. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Next up is, thank you, Stacy. by the way. Next up is Lisa. All right, let me unmute you here. There we go. Stacy and Shelly's story, were, they were great. I don't know if I have the right story <laughs> to top those two. <laughs> um, comes to mind, um, I was taking a CERT class, which is a community-based class. Um, in 2016 and um, I befriended this lady that was similar to me and she was really articulate and she spoke a lot and um, every class like for three classes we would sit by each other and we'd talk and then we broke up in a class and got in different areas of the class and these other two ladies came up to me and said that lady's weird don't you think so? And my response was, no, she's really smart and very articulate. And the switch was that they weren't expecting me to say that. They, and um, just the um, enlightenment and the, um, watching the switch in their minds was um, like very cool to see. And I don't, yeah, that was my story. <laughs> yeah. And you had actually, before the podcast, you had articulated really well. I don't know if you can bring the words back, but you had articulated okay. <laughs> the idea behind that story fairly well. 
Like, what is the lesson from that? Because I think it's an important one. Oh, okay. Thank you for bringing that up. It's really important. I just, for, it's um, not making a judgment until you get to know the person. Be an open book in meeting people. Because it's so exciting if your book is open to fill in the pages as they talk and the experiences that they have that you you get to know the person and um, integrate that into your true feelings that are positive about the person. And then you look overlook everything else that's negative if there is negativity yeah. <laughs> coming from different areas. So Yeah. And one of the one of the ways that we often fall prey to that is when we hear about someone secondhand before we yeah. have the opportunity to make that impression ourselves. So. Right. It's like we're being gypped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing to yeah. think um, just how prevalent that was, especially in places like high school or any place where you're stuck with a lot of people for a significant amount of time for 12 years. And, mm-hmm. and I think kind of going back to community, I think that is one of the potential dangers is that it gets so tightly knit that anybody who doesn't fit the criteria can be immediately seen for those differences instead of mm-hmm. any additional great qualities they might have. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's really important. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Next You're up welcome. is Dave. Thank you very much, Rikant, uh, Chase, and Alex. Uh, I think this is a great thing to give an opportunity for several of us to tell our stories. Uh, in our education system, I think a lot of times we treat like uh, paper dolls or cardboard cutouts that are all the same, and no, we're all very different. But the thing that always comes to my mind, the biggest change in my life was my divorce recovery weekend. Uh, and I've mentioned it a few times before uh, in some of Shukran's groups, but it was really a big change in my life. I uh, grew up in the Midwest in Kansas, uh, attending church with my family, uh, very much a typical American family. Uh, my parents were school teachers, uh, you, know, you know, good and evil and good and bad. Uh, and had difficulty with relationships, you know, that means girls. Um, so I was late getting married. I was 31. She was 29. And things went pretty well, but it pretty soon became apparent to me that she never really left her family. She was closer to her mother than she was to me. Uh, so I took a transfer down to Dallas for a couple of years at a technical training school to try to change that relationship to try to be closer to her, um, but it wasn't working out. And uh, I was starting to listen to talk radio, and I heard one host say to somebody that called in, well, if, if you're in a marriage without any love, why would you stay there? And I'd been in a loveless family growing up, and here I was about getting to be age 45, and people in my family normally lived to about age 90. I thought, well, I'm looking forward to 45 more years in loveless marriage. And even though I had this terrible impression of, uh, especially divorced men of being you know, so selfish and greedy and everything else, um, I made a tough decision that I really need to get divorced. Um, and it was terrible on my low self-esteem that I already had. Um, and I went through a period of what I call the not worth living period um, and it's very typical in divorce to, to be suicide part of the time. It's never seriously that far. But I started reading self-help groups, uh, books, pardon me, and uh, pop psychology just to live from one day to the next until I was at a church picnic. And a lady said, well, you need to go on this divorce recovery weekend. I said, oh, okay, whatever. Um, and I went on it, and it was amazing. Um, it was led by other divorced and widowed people, um, and they took turns telling their life stories, just laying their heart out on their sleeve. And it was unbelievable. And we realized it was non-judgmental. And after every presentation, we were given some questions to work on. And we went to a quiet place and, and wrote in a journal and we got together in a small group and shared 
And it was so deep, so wonderful. It was just wonderful for me. And afterwards, I was invited to come on what was called the team to help present other weekends for other people. And so I wrote my speeches, talks. And uh, in Wichita, Kansas, I was did five or six down there. And I moved up here. And they needed some people to join their team up here. I said, no, I'm, I'm over way past that. And when I came up here, I had a, a dream about my ex-wife. I realized, you know, maybe I'm not over that. So I came on the team up here and helped for more than five or six weekends up here. So I was involved for about 10 years. But I started reading psychology, uh, even Carl Jung and everything else. But, uh, but then I started helping other people, leading a weekly uh, recovery or support group, as well as the recovery weekends. And uh, as, uh, as I told people, uh, it even changed my uh, Myers-Briggs type. It was such a radical change in my life, but uh, it was been such so rewarding to help other people. And, and it really changed me and helped me become the person I am. But I uh, thank you all. Good night. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for, for sharing, Dave. I actually have a question. So, you know, if teaching, I mean, as you said, teaching other people, helping other people to recover from similar situations was an integral part of your own method of recovery. Do you think that that's the required path for most people in that situation? Like, do you think that most people who are going to get the, the most out of say going to one of those camps, those weekends would really benefit the same way from turning around and becoming part of the team? It's, it's interesting. Uh, we typically invite everyone that participated in the weekend. A lot of times, down Wichita, we'd have about 30 participants or so, and not everyone would, but a lot did. In fact, uh, by the time I left, I think we had about 50 people on our team. So we were doing three or four weekends a year, and we had, uh, had kind of a rule not to do more than uh, two weekends in a row. So we had quite a few people helping. Um, but I, as I recall, you folks did a switch with a lady that was running a recovery program in the city. Yep. Yeah. Amanda Falk runs uh, the dorm. Yeah. And it sounds to me like a very similar situation for her that she, I think got a lot of help out of helping people. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I say, it's not for everybody, but to me, it's a very rewarding thing to do. And it's, it's not everybody's thing, but uh, in fact, I was trainer for a while teaching people how to facilitate the conversations, how to, give people equal time. And we all know about that in small groups. Um, but yeah, it's to me, it's a wonderful way to help other people. It's called what paying back or you're giving back. It's a, a great opportunity. Excellent. Another thing that, that you brought up that I want to point out that I think is important is just also bringing it once again, back to community, how important it is to have people around us who we trust to kind of help us point out our blind spots or to notice these things, you know, have how to, to have somebody else, even like the talk radio person, you said, you know, talking about being in a loveless marriage and, and just causing other ideas that we're not with the current information and ideas we have are not generating ourselves. So to get that flow in and out, I think is super important. And I think your, your story helps uh, understand that. Yeah. I reinforce the community. As I said, this team, uh, really became a family. And because we were all single divorced adults, you know, we were lonely and missing touch very much. So we very much were into hugging each other. And some of the women realized, you know, because little fear at first, it, it wasn't a sexual thing at all. It was just something that we all missed and it was helped to uh, give each other love. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dave. Sure. Thank you. All right. We're going to go to Joe now. You are up. Oh, thank you. Actually, following everybody's stories is going to be—it's uh, going to be quite a challenge. But um, you know, I appreciate everybody sharing here this evening. Uh, you know, I think that there was a genuine switch in my life when uh, I was part of a very dogmatic religious community, 
And I decided that I needed to break away from that. And it was incredibly difficult uh, because it was a community. Uh, but it was something that was not for me. And I know I needed to get outside of that. And when you leave and you're on your own, it can be quite intimidating. Uh, so that's a whole story within itself. And while I won't go into those details, that's the, the switch that I had made. But I found something to fill in that same period was stoicism in, in the past few years. And what stoicism has really done is it's given me a name for something that I've always been doing. And it's the way I've always been living. It has it also given me context as to the cardinal virtues. And I was in the Catholic faith where, you know, that there was, you know, faith, hope, and charity, which was part of the cardinal virtues, but you start to understand why they were there and you start to understand why stoicism virtues has its virtues. And it resonated with me much more. And what it did is it restored a lot of my uh, identity because all of a sudden I started to think, okay, I just don't need to be dogmatic about the way I was living. And I wasn't necessarily living incorrectly. So it started to fill in a void for me that I felt lonely. And now I am starting to go through a journey of understanding myself. And part of that understanding is doing things like journaling and starting to meditate. And these are stoic practices where. I'm healing from a very traumatic uh, experience when you leave a community. And it starts to give me inspiration as to this is actually possible. I can get better. And I hadn't thought that for the longest time. And it, so for the, the, the idea of community and the idea of 52 living ideas, uh, you know, it has been such a benefit to me and the, actually the, the breakout rooms and inter interacting with everybody that's here tonight, but, you know, uh, attending discussions with John, attending discussions on, uh, you know, um, with you guys. I mean, it, it's what really it's given me is hope. And, you know, with that kind of change is it's a reminder that there are people that are really interested in this world and not just being, uh, you know, educated and, and interesting in ideas, but also being ethical. Uh, the other thing Stoicism has really given me to, is too is the it's creating space. It's creating space for me to help other people by understanding what I can control, what I can't control. And then from there, I can start to really start to engage with other people in a more meaningful way. And when you come from something that you're just so dogmatic, you're just surviving, that feeling is like, it's, it, it's so liberating that, you know, you say every evening to yourself, how lucky you really are. And so it's a, it's a process. And, but the fact that I just am now realizing where I was, and where I can go to, where I can, where I can lead to, uh, it, it, it really, it allows you to appreciate the journey that you went through, or the experiences that you went through. Not that I would go through them again in certain cases, but, but also to know that where other people are hurting, and, you know, to kind of help them along the way because you've been hurt. Uh, and so I think that that's a really important lesson. So I would specifically speak to the idea of finding stoicism and, and uh, you know, in 52 Living Ideas and the Greater Philadelphia Thinking Society as well, which, we, you know, we've done some joint meetups. Uh, you know, they've been a really fantastic group in my recovery. Uh, but this is the first time that in a long time that I feel like it's possible. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate you contributing that. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, you, you specifically use the words filled some of the gap or filled the gap. And it's interesting to me that you went from 
something you would describe as dogmatic to something you described as people who are interested in this world, in ideas and being ethical, that's exploratory. Right. And those, those seem to be polar opposites. And yet an exploratory outlook on the world can fill the gap that was left by leaving dogmatism. I think that that's a switch in itself that is worth highlighting. Because yeah. I think there are a lot of people who are afraid to let go of dogma in whatever form. It doesn't have to be religious dogma. People are afraid to let go of dogma because it does feel like it's going to, if you don't have the dogma, you're going to lose your community. You're going to lose your identity. But the importance and the benefit of switching to something exploratory, something revisable, something, you know, that has that level of interest in the world, like you said, of ideas and ethics, there's such a huge benefit there. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, the idea that the element of sincerity that is exists when you're exploring something and you're discovering it versus where you have this prepackaged way of a dogmatic or absolute approach to reality where you have the answers and you're so afraid to upend them, you know, that's where it, it's, it, it's been incredibly, uh, um, you know, it's it, it, transforming when I start to say, okay, I'm not afraid of exploring answers that I don't know. And it comes back to even something, you know, you're challenging yourself to go into the unknown. And, and that is a liberating feeling and it takes it's a it's a transition it's not easy it's a transition um because sometimes you know it's easy to want the answers but i i think that that kind of that that really articulated my uh, transition um beautifully so i appreciate that i think also another important point is just that it's yours you know what i mean you have the the freedom to look at stoicism and even though other, you know, thousands of other people and, you know, have come up and with their own versions of it, you're able to make it your own and uh, discard things without judgment um, for you and, and make it your own personal brand of stoicism. And that's not, you know, unless you're in a different, you know, kind of circle than I am, that's not frowned upon. <laughs> right. And thank you for being, and it's also the ability that it's also given me the ability to suspend judgment. Like you understand when you reach your place and how you got there, that everybody has their own way of doing things and you appreciate them for who they are. And it's authentic versus, you know, something that is just being told to you where you're actually forced to make a judgment in a more absolutist type of approach. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because the idea that stoicism has really taught me to suspend judgment has probably been the most important lesson in, in conjunction with the dichotomy of control, um, you know, that I've, I've taken to it, uh, taken from it today, uh, to date. So before we move on, Joe, there's just a quote uh, that that made me think of from Scott Barry Kaufman, who I, I'm going to see if we can get him on the podcast. I'm this this guy has amazing ideas. If you haven't heard of him, he go read his book, listen to interviews with him. This is a, cur uh, a quote from him. Be curious, not judgmental in everything you do and with everyone you meet. There's plenty of time left for judgment later if you feel you must. So, all right. With that, thank you. Thank you, Joe. We will move to Deborah. Is Deborah still here? Yes, ah, I'm there you here. are. Uh -huh. Sorry, right, Deborah, you're up. I was fielding a bunch of questions from parents just now. Sure. They, uh, they've been texting me at up to ten o'clock at night. So um, anyway, I will think about this now. <laughs> um, now, Chase, you had such a perfect segue into what I want to talk about. And I realize that I've probably talked too much about teaching, so I'm not going to talk about that as much, except to say that um, my goal as a teacher is to get everyone to be their best selves and to find out what they love and what makes their heart race. And um, so for me, 
what does that for me um, is, um, and ideas and experiences that have changed my mind is world travel. So I was exposed to music um, as a young girl. I had to learn how to play piano. My parents required all of us to do that at a very young age. And even though I've had some really mean, mean music teachers, I love music so much that it wasn't enough to make me dislike music. And the way it ties into world travel for me is I've been fortunate because I've been to 45 countries and 45 states. And I used to think, so the switch is that I used to think that the world was gigantic and that people were really different and the music was different all over the world. And then from traveling to all those places and a lot of it I did by myself or I've been on concert tours where I've, where I've sung in some really big choirs, like 300 people with full orchestras. And um, so since I've been to so many places and I, even when I was with a large group, I would wander off by myself and just go down the, the road less traveled. And I would try to connect with people one-on-one. -on -one. And um, I found out that the world is actually really small in a way. And that people want the same things, no matter where they are. We want health. We want happiness. We want kindness. We want opportunities. Um, we want um, to have a great family, to make friends, to explore. Um, and so then by singing in these international concerts, I have um, discovered that music is a universal language and I think everyone knows that, but it, I really got to see it exemplified because I remember singing in Spain, singing in Spain, we were in Barcelona, we were in this gorgeous Baroque church and these little Spanish ladies were just hovering around us like little birds after the concert and they gave us, um, I'm not Catholic, what is the thing called that? The rosary, they gave us rosary beads after the concert and it was just so precious. And they're Spanish, I think it was Catalonian. And so we didn't really understand them but they clearly were just beaming and so, so happy. Um, and it just felt really good to be able to contribute something as a traveler and leave something of myself. Um, and then I found out also when I ask questions and I seek out opportunities, that doors just open up and the world just opens up in all its brilliance with these amazing people to me. Um, and so because of that, my main takeaway is that I feel at home everywhere. I feel like the entire world is my home. It's not just this little condo in Mission Viejo, California. It's just... My home is Istanbul this week. My home is this tree house in the savannah somewhere this week. And also, um, I remember my, one of my yoga teachers saying that if everyone traveled all over the world, we would have no more war and no more racism. Yeah. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say. Thank you, Deborah. I, I could not agree more that for all the differences in the world, we are more similar, far, far more similar. And that's a lesson that everyone could stand a huge reality check on. Amazing. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I've also heard from other people who have had similar travel experiences, that same thing, feeling at home everywhere. Because once you have spent time with actual people who are local to wherever you're going. And when you've done that enough places, you, you have that, that, that realization in a visceral way that you feel that comfort. And yeah, that's amazing. I, I would love to. It's a wonderful feel feeling. Yeah. You will. <laughs> yeah. You just have to be brave enough to um, talk to people and things. Yeah. And just be approachable. Just look really chill and calm. And yeah, <laughs> I know I'm fortunate because um, solo women travelers are a lot more approachable than men. Yeah. So you, it, it helps if you're by yourself and you just 
I put a soft expression on your face and, and that sort of thing. And you're just like friendly and you say hello in a friendly way and you make eye contact. So there are little tricks. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to <laughs> oh, we lost you for a sec there. I didn't hear the last. I said I, I need to write a book one day. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Send it to me. Yeah. Okay. And Alex, what were you going to say? I, I think we're all getting a, a small dose of that now with the internet too, being able to just chat with somebody across the world and and notice that you connect on the same things you connect with your friends on. And, you know, even this group, you know, there's people all over the country and the world and we're all here talking about the same stuff. So it's, it's definitely um, eye opening. Yeah. yeah. I, I've told Shrikant so many times that I'm so appreciative because I came to New York and I go there regularly and I found you guys because I always look for lectures and talks and that's one way I connect with local people. And I found him and I went to your group live twice. And then when COVID hit um, and I, we went into quarantine, I found you guys online through Meetup. And I was, I stayed, it was five years. So, so happy that I get to be with you guys as much as I want, which is amazing. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Deborah. That wraps up our audience contribution on that question. Switch is produced by Mojo Filter Media. That's our audio production company that specializes in audio for interactive media. Composition, production, implementation, we do it all. Find out more at www.mojofilter.media.